It's good to see you all uh, yet again. It's been my joy to be able to speak here a few times before, and uh, as Pastor Mark mentioned, uh, I am a part of the GOC Mafia, and uh, one of the uh, sweetest things about coming to, to Lighthouse Bible Church in San Jose is that I get to catch up with some old friends from UCLA, and uh, my experience in the past few times that I've spoken here has been something along the lines of me, you know, after the, the sermon, speaking to a few of my fellow Bruins and saying, hey, how's it going? They're like, oh, hey, uh, it's going great. How, where's, where's Linda? And, and the past couple times I had to say, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just me this time, only to be greeted with, oh. <laughs> and so I, I've, I've gotten tired of the, the sadness, the disappointment that slowly turned to anger that I did not bring my better half with me. So, so Linda is here today. Uh, and uh, I do want to begin with a confession. I need to, need to confess something to all of you this morning. I woke up this morning thinking that church started at 10 a.m. And so I leisurely went over to my old church, or my, my current church, and sat through the, the 8 o'clock service, leisurely drove back home to pick up Linda, leisurely chatted it up with my wife over breakfast, and jumped in the Prius at about 9.25. Uh, Linda is uh, using the bathroom inside, and I'm checking my phone for the address. I look up your website. And I think to myself, weird, it says 9.30 on there. I got to tell Mark to update the website. People are going to show up early for church. And then I thought to myself, maybe the website team is not wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But surely, I spoke there like six weeks ago, and it's, it's 10. And so I, I have... Linda text Emily Chang, and in the, the mist, mist of this uh, text exchange, I get a call from Mark, and there it is. There it is, and he is so kind. Brother, are we still on for this morning? <laughs> yes, we are, Mark. And Mark, just, just a heart of gold. If you guys may have thought that was the longest prayer in the world that Mark just prayed, you are correct. Not only is Mark a man of God who communes with God like that, but also he was covering for me. <laughs> and I praise God for that and that long prayer where he prayed for like every single one of you by name. Uh, so, uh, you know, what can you do? You know, there's a lot of things you can do to cover up when you're late. Uh, if you, you wake up late for something and someone calls you and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm waiting for you outside. You know, you can always do <clears throat> like you just didn't wake up, like, oh, hey, what's up, man? Hey, 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 I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah, just give, just give me a minute. And, uh, you know, just, just run and wash up super quick and, you know, mouthwash, no brushing. You would do stuff to cover it up, but this time there was no covering it up. Uh, the only thing that I thought to do, and I, I, I have rarely done this, but I needed to pull out the big guns. And so I'm cruising in the Prius, and I, I switch from eco mode to power mode, and it does absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, uh, roll in here, 
thinking it's 10 o'clock, uh, around 10.01, and, uh, and here I am, and thankful for this time to preach uh, yet again, uh, thankful for the times I've come in the past, and thank you for this, uh, my last time preaching at Lighthouse Bible Church. <laughs> oh, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, thank you for your grace with me as uh, I eventually got here. Uh, thankful to the Lord for this opportunity, even though it's a little bit different than most times I've preached. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. I want to begin by talking about movie trilogies. Nothing like a good movie trilogy. The first one comes out, you watch it, it's good. And so you can't wait for the second one to come out. The second one comes out, and it's awesome, and then you're dying for that third one to come out, because i got to see how this thing ends. And then when all three movies are out, uh, you can do a marathon with your friends where you watch all three movies in one sitting, extended version. And it seems like there's a trilogy for everybody, no matter what your taste in movies. There's The Dark Knight, if you're into superheroes. There's Toy Story, if you're into Disney, and you get a bonus movie as well. Uh, There's Back to the Future, if you're old, like me. Uh, There's Star Wars, if you're into sci-fi. And Star Wars, there's three trilogies, and so three sets of three, and we can argue some other time over which trilogy is the best of the three. But there's one trilogy that seems to transcend them all. Arguably the best one of all time. It seems to appeal to people of different ages, different walks of life, different movie tastes. It seems to appeal to everyone, and that is the Lord of the Rings. I personally have never met anyone who didn't like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I have met people who haven't seen the Lord of the Rings, and it's okay, there's time to repent. Of course, the real fans read the books, right? And I, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm not a real fan. I have not read the books, but I do know the movies are really good. And if you haven't watched them, then I just want to give you a, a little preview here. Not, not, not a spoiler, just, just a little sneak peek at some of the characters in the book. Now, the first, or in the movie, in the first movie, uh, it's called The Fellowship of the Ring. And you have uh, quite a few interesting characters in this one. You have Gandalf who is this sagely wise wizard with a a long gray beard. Uh, You have four hobbits who are little people, and they have disgusting-looking feet, including Frodo Baggins, who's in charge of destroying the ring. Uh, There is Aragorn, a courageous warrior, really good with a sword and, and a rightful king, Uh, There's Boromir, this unstable character, but has fierce loyalty to his country, and this this loyalty causes him to betray his friends at one point. Uh, There's Legolas, an elf with a bow and arrow, and he's a fan favorite with the ladies. He's handsome, he's smooth, he can't miss with his bow and arrow. Uh, Gimli, uh, a fan favorite with no one. Uh, an ugly-looking dwarf who's only about this high, and he's got an anger problem. And the, the movie is about the fellowship of these characters, wildly different characters who come together with a common goal, one common purpose. They work together to destroy the ring. 
and thus defeat the forces of darkness. And here in the Fellowship of the Ring, we have an illustration for our main topic this morning, and that is unity. As Christians, the Bible calls us to unity. But our unity is not uniformity. That doesn't mean that we're all the same. We're all very different in the church. We have different backgrounds. We have different upbringings. Uh, we have different jobs and different passions. And yet, we all come together in fellowship. We all come together to unite for one common thing. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels people uh, from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, who otherwise would not hang out with each other, but come together for the gospel. And this message that, that Jesus Christ loves us so much that he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, this message is so big so significant, so life-altering that it unites us in spite of our differences. And that's what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. I'm going to give you the outline up front, the outline for the sermon. We're going to first look at the goal in verse 10. The problem in verses 11 to 12, and the solution in verse 13. The goal, the problem, and the solution. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, let's read verses 10 to 13. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's first look at the goal, and that is unity. The goal is being together, being close, being tight-knit, being in harmony with each other. As you can see in verse 10, Paul calls the church in Corinth to unity when he appeals to them that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Paul's saying don't argue with each other, don't fight with each other, have conversations with each other that are in agreement, that are full of love and full of care. He goes on to say in verse 10, there should be no divisions among you. When I hear the word divisions, I think of a church like this one that has Lines drawn between it, borders, uh, fixed, established borders where they shouldn't be, dividing the church into smaller groups. Uh, you're in group A, and you over here, you're in group B, and you in the back, you're in group C. And if you're in group A, you hang out with group A. 
I don't even think about talking to group B. Uh, group C, only hang out with them if absolutely necessary. And so that's what's happening in the church in Corinth, uh, that there are divisions going on where there shouldn't be there. Uh, Paul says, instead, erase those lines, erase those borders. This is supposed to be one united church family. The end of verse 10 calls the church to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, being of the same mind emphasizes what you think, uh, what's actually in your mind, the content, uh, the ideas, the, the emotions in your mind. And then being of the same judgment emphasizes how you think, uh, how you use your mind, uh, your thought process. So really, we have two synonyms here that are really emphasizing your mind and emphasizing that the way you use your mind should be the same way that other people in the church use their mind. You are to think the same way. Now, that's a tall order. It's even kind of strange. We're all supposed to think the same way. How can we do that when we're all so different? Well, this doesn't mean that, you have to, that everyone in the church has to think the exact same way about every single little thing. Remember, this is unity, not uniformity. This is not calling us to all just be the same person. But what this is calling us to is that in spiritual things, in significant things, in eternal things, we're to be on the same page. We're to be of one mind. And scripture tells us what these significant, eternal things are. And we can find some of them simply by doing a a word study of this key word here, the word mind. What kind of mind are we called to have as Christians throughout the Bible? Let me give you a few examples. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. I'll read it for you. Listen for the word mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so what, what mind are we supposed to have? The mind of Jesus. When he counted others more significant than himself, when he looked out for others' interests by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. We're all supposed to have this mind. This is the, the kind of thinking that we're to have. Humble minds. A mind that says, everyone in this room is more significant than me. A mind that thinks... That guy that I have beef with, he is more significant than me. That person that I've never really gotten along with in church, they're more significant than me. And I'm to have a humble attitude toward them and serve them and their interests. That's the kind of mind that we're called to. And if we all strive to have that kind of mind, well, we're well on our way to unity. Another biblical instruction for how we're to think as a church is found in Colossians 3.2. Set your minds 
on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, we are all to set our minds on things above, to set our mind on eternal things, to think often about heaven, about our great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, about holiness, about worship, about what you're going to do today that's going to matter 10,000 years from now. How about Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven from the mouth of Jesus? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. As Christians, we must have minds that are set on loving Jesus Christ, on loving our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to love God with our minds, our, our thinking, our intellect, our imaginations, our decision makings, our minds must be full of love for God. A couple more, Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Put off your old way of thinking before you're a Christian and instead put on a new way of thinking. Have your thoughts renewed by the power of God's word and the power of his spirit. So, so what kind of minds are we to have? What kind of minds are we all in the church supposed to have? We're to think of ourselves humbly. We're to think of eternal things and heavenly things. We're to think in a way that loves God. We are to think in accordance with the Holy Spirit. We are to think in a renewed way. And that's what Paul means when he says, be united in the same mind. And not that you have the same opinion about everything. And not that you have the same thought process as everyone else. We all process information differently. Uh, not that everyone's artistic or everyone's a stem person or everyone's a medical person it's not about those more superficial things it's about the deep weighty and spiritual things that's where we have to think the same that's where we all need to be singing from the same sheet of music and the more that we strive to have the kind of mind that scripture calls us to in these eternal things the more that we're going to be verse 10. The more we're going to be of the same mind, of the same judgment, the more we're going to agree when it matters. And the more we're going to eliminate divisions, erase those borders that should not exist in the church. So that's the goal. Now that's the target that we're trying to hit. It is unity. But in the church of Corinth, they missed the bullseye. There was a problem. Let's turn now to the problem in verses 11 to 12. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? A woman in the Corinth named Chloe had some friends who came to Paul and told him, hey, we got some problems going on in Corinth. There's quarreling going on in the church. And quarreling isn't a cordial back and forth. Quarreling isn't a friendly debate. A quarrel is a fight, an argument, a short tempers and bursts of anger. In verse 12, we see that the church had done the exact opposite of what Paul wanted them to do, and that is they created divisions, drew lines and borders between groups. And what they were doing was lining up behind their favorite leaders. And so if you were in the church in Corinth, you were a part of one of four cliques, one of four groups. And the first group was the Paul group, the Paul people. Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and he had pastored the church there for some time. And so understandably, there was this tender affection toward him. In fact, he had led many of them personally to Christ. And so as a spiritual father, people were saying, well, that, that's my guy. I'm, I'm with the apostle Paul. But then there was this second group of people, the second clique in the church, that said, yeah, 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 Paul, Paul's great and all, but Have you heard Apollos preach? Uh, The book of Acts, Acts 18.24, tells us a little bit about Apollos. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Woo! Apollos, gifted communicator. He is so clear. He is so compelling. I don't even think about looking at my watch when he's preaching. The time just flies when he preaches. Did you hear the wisdom that just rolls off his golden tongue? That's the Apollos group. Third group is the Cephas people or the Peter people. Peter, of course, one of the original 12 disciples. In fact, the leader of the 12. And you know Peter. Uh, He was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, passionate, spoke out of turn, hot-headed, but the leader, and and people liked that passion. He had the mamba mentality, and people say, that's my guy, Peter. Fourth group. Uh, You know, you guys can go ahead and just uh, fight over which group you're in. (laughs) We're just going to follow Jesus, you know, know, the God-man, Emmanuel, Messiah, that's all we really care about. And so you see, see what's going on here. They, they drew these lines in the church, lining up behind their favorite leader, and they all thought, I'm not going to mix with these other groups because they identified with a certain group. Now, what's the problem? I'm calling point to the problem. What is the problem? Disunity? Yes. Division? Sure. But what's the main problem? Pride. Pride was drawing these lines, causing people to associate with certain groups and not others. Notice that Paul doesn't choose a winning side. He has a problem with all of them. 
you would think as Paul, he might say, ah, you guys, Paul group, you know, he got to, thank thank you, thank you, I got to give you some love, it's my people. Or maybe he would choose the Jesus group, right? Okay, guys, I got to say, Jesus group wins, you know, but he condemns all of them. And it wasn't because of what the group stood for or because how the group uh, was thinking, but it was mostly and mainly and really only because of how they acted toward one another, because of their attitude of pride. It's the way they went about it that created this division. They elevated their own group in order to put down and devalue the people in the other groups. And so, in application, don't think so much about where, where are we divided. Instead, turn, turn the the microscope inwards, and look at your own heart. Where are you prideful? The disunity is only surface level. The pride is at the heart level. Where are you prideful? We all have pride. It's not a question of are you prideful, it's where is your pride? Because that, my friend, that area of your heart is where you are going to cause division in the church. Are you prideful about your job? You got a good job, good salary. Only hang out with the people with good jobs. Is it a COVID thing? Clearly, you've read the best articles. Uh, You've figured it all out, and so you only hang out with people who think the same way there. Or maybe it's simply a personality thing. You're outgoing, you're cool, you're likable. And you only hang out with people who are like that as well. And we all wish that all that, that stuff, the popularity contest, I would just stay in high school. And then once we graduated high school, it would all go away. But sadly, it doesn't. That's something that we still have to fight. So where are you prideful? Your pride is going to erect walls and draw borders where they don't belong Your pride is going to lead you to stay in a group and not love and care for people outside of that group. The root problem is pride. And so now let's look at the solution. And that comes to us in verse 13. The goal is unity. The problem is pride. And the solution is the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. And the good news starts with the bad news. And the bad news is that you are a sinner. You were born in your sins. You are completely incapable, unable to come to God for forgiveness on your own. You need Jesus Christ. And the bad news is replaced with the good news that Christ came to die not for people who were friendly toward him, not for people who were just strangers to him, but for sinners, for enemies, those who had pushed him away, those who were his enemies, those who had broken his laws and sinned against him personally. That's who he came to die for. This is the good news. This is the gospel that those who have pushed Jesus away can be reconciled to him. And this came at a high price. Jesus didn't just give some of himself, didn't just give some of his time or uh, some of his energy. He, he gave it all. 
He gave his life, laid it down on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty that we deserved, suffering the wrath of God for sin. He absorbed it all on the cross. And verse 13 brings our attention to this message that is so precious to us. It it, it highlights and, and puts the spotlight on the gospel itself, and it does so through a series of three rhetorical questions. Let's read them. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, these are rhetorical questions to really drive the point home. There's a level of getting your point across that you can accomplish with a rhetorical question that you cannot with simply a statement. So it's, it's your boss coming to you and asking, did I ask for those reports two days late? Now this is the mom talking to her kid, did I say you could eat ice cream before dinner? Or the teacher speaking to that student, are you supposed to be playing a, f- a game on your phone during class? Obviously, no. If, if rhetorical question you're not supposed to answer because it, it's so obvious what the answer is, and you can see the, the power, the force behind a rhetorical question, even the ability for a question to rebuke, to correct, and that's how Paul is using it here. We have three rhetorical questions that strongly communicate three commonalities that we have as Christians, uh, three commonalities that we are to have as the church. And these three commonalities add up to the solution, and that is the gospel. Uh, we're going to see a common body, a common savior, and a common commitment. Uh, Let's take these one at a time. First, a common body. Is Christ divided? Rhetorical question. Obviously, no. Christ's body is not chopped up into little pieces. He is not dismembered into a bunch of body parts that are scattered throughout the room. No, he is one whole person. This looks ahead to chapter 12 when Paul will call the church the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul uses the body of Christ as an illustration of who we are as a church. Each person in the church is a body part, but each body part is connected to form one organic whole, to form one body. And so disunity contradicts who we are as a church. It contradicts who we are as the body of Christ. Uh, what if your, 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 your fingers on your right hand start to say, well, we don't need left-hand fingers. We're so much stronger. We're used so much more often. Forget the left-handed fingers. Just chop them off for all we care. That's not going to go well for the body. How are you going to type? How are you going to cook? How are you going to hold a baseball bat? How are you going to do anything? The answer is not well, very poorly. You hurt the body when some members of it are disconnected. And so the illustration of the body is meant to promote unity. Paul's simply saying, guys, 
You're the body of Christ, but you're acting like separate body parts when you should be serving and living together as one. Solution number two we see is a common savior, a common savior. Uh, Paul continues in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Ooh, you know, I don't like to say that, right? But again, this is the obviously no. Paul says, stop putting so much attention on me. So here he's really going after the Paul group, you know? And again, he might have, you might think that he would say, well, Paul group, I, I like you guys. But instead he goes, no, I'm not anybody special. Stop elevating me. You're acting like I was crucified for you when the answer is obviously no. And equally obvious is who it was that was crucified for them, and that is Jesus Christ. And so by bringing up the crucifixion, Paul is bringing to mind Jesus. Jesus was slain for your sin. Jesus took the nails in his hands and feet. Jesus was pinned to wooden boards. Jesus died as our substitute, pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So in speaking about the crucifixion, Paul draws our attention to the Savior, the only Savior, the one Savior that unifies us all. You see, we all stand on common ground when we stand at the foot of the cross. We all stand equal under the blood of Jesus Christ. Number three, not only a common body and a common savior, but a common commitment. A common commitment. The end of verse 13, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Third time, obviously no. Paul's saying you were baptized in the name of Jesus not me, even if I was the one who baptized you, even if I was the one who stood next to you in the water and dunked you down and pulled you back up, it doesn't mean you were baptized in my name. You were baptized in the name of Jesus, meaning that you were baptized in full commitment to him, not me. As Christians, we believe that baptism is not just this empty ritual that we've been doing for centuries, so we just keep doing it, but rather, baptism is this ritual that is full of meaning. When you were baptized, you were making a public profession of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You were nailing your colors to the mast. You were declaring from the rooftops that you stood with Jesus and you will stand with him until the day of your death. And then you enter into glory with him for all eternity. But, but baptism is this public profession of your commitment, your allegiance to Jesus for the church to see and for the world to see. And so when you think baptism, you think about commitment. And that's uh, why we often have people read their testimonies at their baptisms because the two go hand in hand. And in our common baptism, we then find a common commitment. You committed your life to Jesus. And so have I. The greatest aim, the greatest passion of your life 
is glorifying Jesus. And so's mine. And therefore, we can be together. We can be united. We can be of the same mind and the same judgment, even though we're wildly different, even though our personalities are so different, even though our parents raised us so different, even though our jobs are so different, we have what matters in common, Jesus Christ and a passion to glorify him, a commitment to live for him. Now notice how all three of these rhetorical questions are centered on the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you have been brought into a common body, the church of Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel, you have a common savior, a savior that that you love. If you believe the gospel, you're committed to Jesus and glorifying him. And so as you as you remember the gospel, the central message in our faith, you're going to find that you are drawn to people who treasure that message as well. And, and, and you may not be best friends with everybody. Uh, you might find people here that you just think you're, you're thinking on different wavelengths. Uh, we're not talking about style of music. We're not talking about your take on current events. We're not talking about personality differences or uh, if you like the Warriors or if you like the Lakers. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're talking about major things. All of these other differences, they're tiny, small, insignificant, grains of sand compared to the mountain of commonality that we all have. Jesus Christ and a passion to further the work of his gospel here on earth. Now, you can think of a basketball team, and if you've ever played any kind of team sport, uh, you, you know that people are very different there. In basketball, you have tall people, short people, medium people. You have people good at dribbling, people good at shooting, people good at rebounding, people good at defense. And you have very different personalities where it can lead to some conflict in the locker room. But on game day, they all work together. On game day, they have a common goal, and that is to win the game. And so simply, church, you've got to remember, we're on the same team, playing for the same goal to glorify Jesus Christ and proclaim his gospel in the world. Let's pray and ask the Lord that he would give us this unity that he's called us to. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for this church and I, I thank you for sovereignly bringing each and every person here. And we know that this is your work, a uh, part of your all-wise and all good plan. And at the same time, Lord, we know that we are still but sinners with so much pride. And we so often think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And we confess that that causes us to put others down. And um, we ask for forgiveness in this. God, I ask that you would help us to identify these areas of pride and 
areas where we think we're better than other people so that we can weed them out, rid ourselves of them, lay them down at your feet. Apply scripture to these areas and and watch you work in cleansing us of these sins. And uh, I pray that this would lead to greater unity in this church. And that Lighthouse Bible Church would would not be unified for the sake of being together, uh, but that they would come together so that they can make a greater impact on this community and the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message they love and treasure so much. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.